We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Steve I'm coming at you with a thought I've had with for quite some time. Every time I go to Mass and I think of people pushing against the altar rail and things like that, I'm going, no one knows what the altar rail even is, or they wouldn't be leaning against it like it's their push-off, you know, crutch or something like that. Anyways, so finally getting around to it. You know, Michael Rose back in 2001 wrote a book called Ugly as Sin. Everybody knows about his other book. Uh, I just went, goodbye, good men. Yeah, that's it. But not too many people have read this one. Well, at least everybody I've talked to, every time I bring up, hey, have you read Ugliest Sin? And they, they had never heard of it. And it's just, it's a fun book to read, easy book to read, hysterically sad book to read, because the it's, you'll see. Because he makes fun of the modern ideas that we got going on uh, for churches, basically. And I've, you've all seen it. If you're listening to this, you've seen it. You probably go to one now. So uh, anyways, at the beginning, he brings up three natural laws of church architecture. First, uh, the first natural law, a church, a Catholic church must have verticality. So you think about it, you walk into a church and your eyes just go up. I mean, how many people go on a pilgrimage to see the 7-Eleven church down the street? Zero. 0.0. <laughs> yes. And he said in uh, Animal House, uh, the president, or was it the principal? I can't think of his last name now. 0.0. Nobody goes and go, gets an awe of the local church of what's happening now because it's not vertical. It's more like a 7 Eleven convenience store type deal. It's horizontal, but not vertical. The example back even in where I grew up in Spartanburg. Took them forever to build a new church because they wasted all the money to build a 7-Eleven church on the east, the west side of town called Jesus Our Risen Savior, and it's a typical, you know, open the open the glass doors and there's the uh, there's a nice carpet that leads into the uh, church which they call the entire thing the sanctuary and uh, you got the office offices down the hall and you got the bathrooms to the left and you got yeah you well, you know. And then they finally built a better church on the east side of town. And people actually have walked by going, man, I'd like to go inside just to see what it is. Now, of course, it's locked. But nobody goes by the other one and says, you know, I, I want to go inside and see what it's like. No, <laughs> looks like an abandoned shopping mall. So you think of the ones like Notre Dame and uh, France and Chartres and the cathedrals in Canada that, you know, like uh, St. Anne's or uh, the big, the basilicas in Germany, etc. I have some of these photos on there because I was looking at it yet last night and I told my wife to come in going, look at this. Gold on the confessional. The, uh, the organ just blows your mind. And what do we got today? You, we're supposed to be better off than the guys back in those days and those guys built and painted just beautiful stuff. And here I am, I'm trying to get my mindset in this, in a parish the other day, yesterday, and I was thinking about that going, so bland, just almost puritanical in the sense that we destroyed all the beauty. So your eyes don't get to catch all that. Nothing made me want to look up. It's just a ceiling with some uh, uh, light bulbs in it. No, nothing. Dome, like you see in some of these old uh, churches. Uh, here's one. Uh, let's see. Uh, domes that have uh, mosaics, paintings. Yeah, things. Like there's there's a couple, but they're not gig. You know, I think there's one in Asheville, North Carolina. It's the biggest uh, dome this side of the Mississippi. 
self-sustaining one. But when you talk about the old school ones, you just look up and they're like, how did they even get up there to paint that? And they got a, fre you know, a fresco of you know, heaven or something like this. Uh, second natural law. A Catholic church must have permanence. Guys, uh, it's the idea of Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He goes in the quote of uh, the medieval the medieval canonist bishop Durandus, twelve twenty to twelve ninety six, reminds us that a church that the church is built with all strength quote upon the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself becoming being the chief cornerstone. Her foundations are in the holy mountains. He goes on and says the permanence of our church structures reflects these qualities of the universal church. And just as verticality points to heavenly, heavenly and eternal, so too does the requ requisite principle of permanence. It's another way in which architects create an atmosphere of transcendence. He, he then quotes a 19th century architect, uh, Eugene, uh, I'm going to kill it, Violette de Luc, who writes of Notre Dame that, quote, everyone who understands construction will be amazed when he sees what numberless Precautions are resorted to in, an, in the execution. How the prudence of the practical builder is combined with the daring of the artist full of power and inventive imagination. And he goes in and says, talks about the Gothic uh, structural system and then gives an example on the next page. Of churches as the Florence Cathedral were conceived as solid, enduring temples, perpetual reminders of Christ's presence active in the world. And you look at that, those guys took, how many of those people took centuries to build this? I mean, generations. And the people that started did not see the ending. It took them time, penance, to build something like this that would be there forever. And we try to build a church in about three weeks anymore, a couple of months, and we're all, we're, oh, it hasn't happened so fast. And you get it, and it's ugly as sin, <laughs> as the book says. So Rose goes on and says there are several ways a church can assert its permanence. First is by its durability. The building that will serve generation after generation, transcending time and culture, must be constructed of durable materials. Mere sticks and stones, shingles and tar won't do. Typically one or another type of masonry construction is used, employing the finest materials available. Now we go for the cheapest materials available. Related to durability is massing. The church must be of significant mass, built with solid foundations, thick walls, and allowing for generous interior spaces. This massing is another aspect of the architectural language of churches. Now you get churches that barely fit a you know, few hundred people. Now these things were huge. And we're not talking just by sizes and how many people can fit, but tallness. And it's something you just can't get a you know a ten foot ladder and put something on the ceiling. These guys, you had to get something. Again, you look up and you go, how did they get up there to paint something like this? And basically, the third is permanence. Uh, this is the same today, yesterday. I mean, I mean, these things lasted millennia, and it doesn't go out of style. You can go in and yes, it's a different style than uh, what would you say outdoor wise is, but. Uh, I mean, your local bar and restaurant is not going to be built like this. So it's different. And you know it's different. That's why people are drawn to it. Like St. Mark's in, uh, I think it's Venice, is it? That doesn't look like something that's just around the corner you're going to get. That's, you know, awe, awesome. Awesome in its real word. Awe-inspiring. Baroque, neo-gothic. I think St. Peter's Basilica and St. Patrick's Basilica in uh, New York City. New York City, neo-gothic, uh, neo-classical, Renaissance, uh, Baroque, uh, early Christian, like St. Paul's outside of walls. The third natural law he goes in is the Catholic Church must have iconography. He goes the third pre uh, requisite principle. Is that of iconography, which speaks significantly to the sign value of the building. First, the structure itself ought to be an icon. This is accomplished primarily through its form and the church's relation to the surrounding environment, whether urban or rural. Second, the worthy church building presents an iconography that points to something other than itself. St. Thomas Aquinas, among other great intellectuals, 
who preceded him by centuries, realized that man's mind is raised to contemplation through material objects. Likewise, in the Spiritual Exercises, published in 1548, St. Ignatius Loyola stressed the importance of visualizing the subjects of meditation, painting, sculpture, and architecture are meant to work together to produce a unified effect. Architect Ralph Adams Cram wrote, quote, Art has been, is, and will be forever the greatest agency for spiritual impression that the church may claim. It's for this reason, he adds, that art is in its highest manifestation the expression of religious truths. It's through art that Christians have developed the ingenuous symbolism that raises our faculties to, of soul to God. The tradition of iconography and symbolism in Catholic culture is rich and broad. Meaning is conveyed through formal elements from basic geometric shapes. Rose goes on saying, inspired by churchmen such as St. Ignatius and St. Charles Borromeo, the masters of the Catholic Counter-Reformation, for instance, expressed the Catholic faith and the very birth of their art by means of elaborate high altars and tabernacles, special niche and aisle shrines dedicated to the Virgin Mary and to the saints, prominent pulpits for preaching, and an abundance of art and glass sculpture, mosaic and painting devised to teach the truths necessary for salvation. The atmosphere created on this model is one of religious mystery, wherein we can experience a little of the unearthly joy of the New Jerusalem, where we can encounter Christ in a unique way. These iconographic churches, these icons, tell the story of Christ and his church. They teach, catechize, illustrate the lives of the church's saintly souls. He goes on and says, again, if we are to look at Notre Dame, we understand easily how a pilgrim can spend days, even weeks, meditating on the mysteries that are enfleshed in the architecture of the cathedral sculpture programs. Again, can that be said of your local parish? So in the second chapter, he goes into a pilgrim goes into the house of God. So he's basically taking a person through beauty of a good, what would you think of the first thing that comes to your mind of a Catholic church? These gigantic, beautiful buildings. And uh, he mentions, and he goes, uh, a traditional church beckons the soul, two souls from afar. So it says, during his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his followers that they were to be the light of the world. Quote, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. He said, just as men do not, quote, light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all of the, all of the house, so he says, the, for church architects, the words of Christ are instructive. Because as we always see in our houses of God, need to show Christ and his church present and active in a particular locale. Suitably, another historical term for the church buildings is a, quote, city on a hill. This refers not only to the preferred location of our churches in high places, just as Solomon's temple was built on Mount Moriah, the highest point in Jerusalem, with the sense of being fortified, protected sanctuary, but also as occupying a place of prominence in the community. The church building shouldn't be hidden because hidden signs are bad signs. As Christ said, a city on a hill cannot be hid. Rather, the church should be integrated into the neighborhood and landscape so that its location reminds the pilgrim of the building's importance and purpose. Basically, so you can't miss, you go into an area, you cannot miss what the church looks like. And he has a photo of, uh, uh, a church, I don't know which one it is, where it's at, but kind of like, if you know, there's places like uh, Charleston, South Carolina, they call it a, well, what's the name of it? It's not Sanctuary City, but uh, I can't remember the, that's called like a holy city. It's, it's not like that, but they have a mandate that you can't build a building higher than a steeple. So you, when you pull into Charleston, you come across the bridge, the only thing you see sticking up are steeples. There's no building that blocks off a church steeple. Albeit, now I'm talking, you know, they have Protestant churches there, but this is just for, think about that. Think about if our churches, Catholic churches, were, you can't miss, you can see them coming into a, a city. You knew where it was. Oh, there it is over there. How, how we get to it, we don't know yet, but we see it from a mile away or two miles away, whatever. It's not something that you just, you're going, I wonder if this is a Catholic church. 
Or, for example, when I use uh, Brent brought up Jesus our risen Savior in Sparmore, South Carolina, if you turn off the main road and you uh, you're not paying attention, you blow by it because it's it's got a little sign out there. But if you if you don't see the sign or if it's uh, it's you know it's off, you have to really turn your head. <laughs> the trees kind of block it out too. Here's one you don't hear much of today. Not only does a church serve as a beacon by its situation on the heights or it's rising above the cornfields, but it's audible too. Through its bells, the pilgrim is reminded of Christ's presence, his importance of the lives of the faithful, and our need to honor him in adoration and prayer. All tolls and peals of the church bells, no matter what the occasion or time of day, are a summons to prayer, whether for the souls of the faithful departed, for the pious recitation of the Angelus, or as a call to worship through participation in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. How many do you hear any bells in your area? Uh, if you read some, like, uh, uh, was that mass book that Father likes talking about? Uh, if you read some mass stories of the saints, you'll, you'll hear about stories. Of, they hear the bells ringing for uh, the canon. And people would literally come off the street, go into the, par- go into the parish, kneel for the consecration, wait for Mass to be over on that but when Father uh, consumes the host, and then they would go on their, their way because they already went to Mass earlier, uh, etc. But the bells would ring and let them know, hey, there's Mass going on, the concentration is about to happen. They'd go and worship God for about, what, five, three, four, five minutes, and then they'd go back out. We don't have that. Um, Angela's bells. Some bells, I know like back, home, back where I grew up, they were on the uh, timer. Uh, so it wasn't... The real bells, but it was a recording, uh, which I come to. If I actually have a sermon on bells, or someone has, they're having something on that. Well, they talk about how the old school bells. You would think they would they wouldn't last as long. It's actually the the newer versions where they have to. It's more expensive, and they have to, and they break easier and they fall apart quicker. The old stuff lasted, but you have to add somebody to ring the bell. And I'm also told that the Muslims go after the bells first. He even mentions how a traditional church's atrium leads us from the profane to the sacred. So it's a place for the faithful to congregate. So you got something out there that's actually nice, kind of like a, uh, a piazza type deal of uh, you know good greenery, flowers, things like that. Uh, almost like a paradise idea of Eden before going into the church instead of the uh, parking lot and then there's the door and he gives a he gives examples of uh saint paul outside the walls the atrium there you see the famous you've seen the photo of saint paul standing there it's got greenery right there uh, or uh san marco in venice with the piazza there gigantic piazza that they have obviously the most famous is the new basilica of saint peter he goes on saying the traditional church's facade tells us of the riches awaiting inside. So once a pilgrim draws near to a church building, standing perhaps in the piazza or near the fountain of the arcade-studded atrium, he comes face to face with the facade, that is, the front exterior, often the most memorable part of the building. The facade may incorporate a bell tower or other towers, statuary, sculptural reliefs, frescoes, stained glass windows. And, of course, the main entrance doors to the church. In a modern urban setting in which church, and he gives the example of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City, may be dwarfed by surrounding structures, the facade takes on an extra importance in that the church itself becomes identified with its facade. The front entrance is the face of the church, the face the church presents to the world. It's often the only part of the building that people will see because not everyone enters the house of God, unfortunately. And thus, it is the facade that has the greatest opportunity to evangelize, teach, and catechize. This is accomplished most obviously through the incorporation of exterior artwork. The facades of great churches of Christendom have been approached with great care by the architects of every age. History, history books show us that there is no one way to design a facade of a church. The emotionally elaborate Gothic exteriors, the austere geometric style wall architecture of the Renaissance, 
and the irregular, undulting sculptural facades of the Baroque all evoke a profound sense of goodness, beauty, and truth, that which naturally draws both the pious pilgrim and the curious skeptic nearer the Porta Celli. All do so through very different means. Yet it's an iconographic beauty that is at the basis of the creation, proper proportions, purity of forms, manifold works of art. And he gives an example of a Chartres' famous uh, Portal Royale, which is part of the element of the Romanesque church that burnt to the ground in 1194. They have a, a scene of the Last Judgment by the door, at the door. <laughs> so the door's right there. You got the land. Uh, how you forget that? Or uh, the Great Rose Window. Uh, quote, uh, American historian Henry Adams wrote, quote, is one of the flowers of architecture which reveals its beauties slowly without end. And uh, Michael goes on and says, the, the rose isn't only one of the most beautiful flowers of God's creation, but it's also one it was also Our Lady's most prolific emblem, representing the beauty and love that the Virgin Mary, this rose, is at the heart of the facade. At the center of this heart is the image of Christ sitting on the lap of the Virgin, who offers her incarnate Son to the world. The images that radiate from Christ are narrative images from Scripture and from the lives of the saints, sometimes referred to as, quote, the eye of God. The Rose Window is a powerful work of art that anticipates the beatific vision of God's beauty in the eternal kingdom. Michael goes on and says, The traditional church's narthex draws us towards the sanctuary. He says, When our pilgrim finally steps through the church doors, he has arrived. It's here in the narthex, the threshold of God's house, that he will pause to get his bearings, knock the snow from his boots, remove his hat, or close his umbrella. But he mentioned this is not just some regular space, just from, from it's a transitional space from the outside world, the profane and temporal, to the church's interior, the sacred and eternal. It's here where our pilgrim will first smell lingering incense and the burning wax of vigil candles. It's here where he'll be given a hint of where he's headed. Thus, it's a dimly lit place decorated modestly with religious art. Perhaps a crucifix hanging on the wall with a prédu beneath it. It's the first devotional space of God's house. Again, uh, hard to find that in most places. The next little section is the traditional church's baptistry. It reminds us of our entrance into the church universal. As the, now it has eight sides, the baptismal fonts. Referring to the resurrection as the eighth day, Sunday comes after Saturday, the Sabbath, seventh day of the week. The baptistry's location is also used to explain and symbolize the meaning of the sacrament, the location in the narthex at the threshold of the church, not inside the church, is symbolic of the pilgrim's entrance into the church universal. You know, most parishes have the baptismal font inside the doors instead of outside in the narthex. This next section is the traditional church's nave declares that the church is the Ark of Salvation. It says, once through the narthex doors, our pilgrim finds himself in the main body of the church. As his eyes adjust to the dim light at the back of the nave, he instinctively looks for the nearest holy water of stoop into which he will dip his fingers to bless himself with the sign of the cross. Obviously, the holy water reminds him of his own baptism. He was blessed with the holy water and baptized in the mystery of the Holy Trinity. Each time he dips his hand in the holy water, he recalls that through this sacrament, he was made a child of God. He goes on, Once our pilgrim's eyes adjust, he finds himself both awed and humbled by the space commonly called the nave, a term derived from the Latin word for ship, from which we get the English word navel. This is the place where the worshiping congregation dwells and it's called nave because it represents the Ark of Salvation. The symbolism of the boat, ship, or the Ark is rich in both scripture and tradition. Both signify safety and well-being, usually during a tumultuous voyage. Noah's protection from the flood via the Ark, designed to God's specifications, is the most obvious allusion. But the church itself is this Ark too, sometimes referred to as the Bark of Peter, the place where Christians are given sanctuary, and are guided on their pilgrimage to the Father's house. 
This next section is the traditional church's pews promote adoration, directing our eyes to the altar. Now, if you notice some of the uh, especially basilicas in Rome, you'll notice there's chairs in the, the massive buildings. Why? Because there's no pews. Because back in the day, you'll see this in the movie Beckett. I remember we were watching and my brother goes, what happened? There's no pews. What did they do? Oh, they knelt. You can kneel on, hard, on the hard floor which people did. Uh, I think it was the movie The Knight's Tale. You see uh, Hugh Ledger's character actually walking in with a horse. He, could, he walked in the, the, the church you know, on horseback and walked around with no problem in it because there's no pews. People would just kneel wherever. And uh, so it's pews are technically kind of a Protestant uh, invention that we just take on because you're sitting to receive, not kneeling to receive. But not saying that the church is now Protestant because of the pews. Don't take it the wrong way on that one. But he mentions they're always unidirectional, facing the sanctuary. And today you'll see a lot that are kind of like in a semicircle. I think it was like a, what do they call it? A, it's a Buddhist coffee thingy. I can't remember the, the name. I think he brings it up in the book. If we get, if I see it, I'll mention it. But yeah, he mentions it. Oh, yeah, he even brings up the uh, that part. He says, pews are part of our Catholic patrimony have been commonly been used in the West since at least the 13th century when they were designed as backless benches. By the late 16th century, because of the Counter-Reformation's emphasis on preaching long sermons, most Catholic churches being built included wooden pews with kneelers and high backs. The new designs accommodated long periods of sitting. Even before full pews were commonly used, the faithful knelt during much of the Mass. And kneeling, in fact, he goes on, has always been distinct posture for Catholic prayer and reverence and adoration and supplication and posture of humility. Through such a posture of the body, humbleness of heart is expressed as our penitence and sorrow for sins committed. In fact, the early church fathers equated kneeling with prayer and worship. Eusebius, for instance, once wrote that St. James continued kneeling in prayer, gave him, quote, knees as callous as those of the camel. And Origen maintained that kneeling is necessary when forgiveness is sought. And I remember saying that uh, they used to, uh, when a priest would walk into a jail cell or a prison to see people inside, they would check his knees while leaving to make sure that it was actually the priest coming out because he usually had calloused knees from being in prayer. Here's a cool one. He brings up the traditional church's confessional prepares us to receive the Eucharist. St. Charles Borromeo, writing in his seminal instructions on church architecture, developed the use of what we now consider the traditional wooden confessional box with a kneeler for the penitent and a screen placed between him and the priest confessor. St. Charles recommended that confessionals be placed at the sides of the nave in some clear open space. He also recommended that the penitent be facing the sanctuary, if possible, turned towards the altar, the focal point of the church, when confessing and receiving the sacrament. After all, the sacrament of penance is a preparation and strengthening on the pilgrimage road towards the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, toward which all seven sacraments are ordered and that which is the source and summit of the Christian life. His next one, he mentions columns, but I'm jumping over to the traditional church's pulpit is subordinate to the altar. So he says, Our pilgrim is uplifted by the beautiful pulpit from which the priest proclaims the gospel and delivers his homily in a clear hearing and in the sight of all those present at the Mass. The pulpit is hexagonal and thus includes five reliefs, the sixth side, is an opening to the lectern. The scenes depicted provide the continuous narrative with the Annunciation and the Nativity together, the Adoration of Magi, Presentation of Temple, the Crucifixion, and the Last Judgment. The pulpit is supported by a central column on the base with grotesque figures representing pagan elements subdued by Christianity. Six external columns are supported on the backs of lions that hover over vanquished prey, a motive symbolic of triumphant Christianity. 
Now, his description of all these symbols on there was just one typical one he's bringing out. Not all of them are like that. I'll try to put photos up as many as I can. But I thought this was uh, quite thought-provoking. The consideration for the placement of the pulpit was reverence and respect for Christ as symbolized by the altar and true presence in the tabernacle. Each pulpit was situated so that the preacher would look out diagonally across the congregation. This enabled him never to have his back to the altar, the tabernacle, or in cathedrals to the bishop when present. This next section is the church's choir serves the mass without calling attention to itself. And he just brings up uh, different organs and uh, just descriptions of the choir, which I saw a photo, I'll bring that up, of just one choir in Germany that just, it was dubbed in gold. It was just incredible looking. Wondering how come we can't have something like that? You get somebody in the back with a piano now. This next section is the traditional church's sacred art teaches and evangelizes us. In the 12th century, Abbot Suger of St. Dennis wrote that, quote, art leads minds from material to immaterial things. Our pilgrim in the nave of the church isn't unaffected by the environment of sacred art. Statuary, stained glass windows, side aisles, shrines, and other devotional art in the forms of reliefs, mosaics, frescoes, and murals are all designed to raise our minds and spirits to God and to eternal things. It's sacred art that helps the architecture of our churches to awe and inspire. Such art prepares our pilgrim to humble himself before God, to offer his prayers, adoration, prepare for sacred mass, and to approach the altar to receive the Holy Sacrament. This next one is stained glass creates a heavenly atmosphere with light. The Benedict Abbot Suger called them, quote, radiant windows to illumine men's mind so that they may travel through the light to an apprehension of God's light. He also called them, quote, sermons that reach the heart through the eyes instead of entering through the ears. Thus did the abbot describe the use of stained glass for sacred purposes. Inspired by this abbot, Gothic architects popularized this artistic method and used this mysterious light to obtain a feeling of aspiration towards God in heaven. Such has come to be the norm through centuries since. Stained glass windows are composed by small pieces of colored glass held together in strips of cast lead to form images that tell the story of salvation history. Stained glass is unique in that it's the only art form that relies entirely on natural daylight. Every other art form, such as painting and sculpture, is designed to be seen by reflected light. With a stained glass window, however, the artist designs it so that the artistic effect is created by light passing through the glass. In a manner of speaking, the artist must, must paint with the light of God. When the sun shines through these windows, the light is transformed into multicolored patterns on the interior of the church, creating an other creating an otherworldly feel, a hint at the beauty of heaven. This next section is the sanctuary sets apart the holiest part of the church. He goes on saying that the church's uh, sanctuary should be marked off from the nave by a higher floor level and by a distinctive structure or decor. Sanctuary marked off by the nave by a distinctive structure. In many churches, the sanctuary is not only differentiated from the nave, but is also framed by the triumphal arc, the portion of the wall over the arch that separates nave from sanctuary. The name is taken from the grand arches built by emperors or governments, typically to commemorate a military conquest. Two of the most well-known arches in the 19th century, Arc de Triumph in Paris and the 4th century Arc de Constantine in Rome. I say there was actually one I saw yesterday looking around. It was in Germany that had this. Michael says the oldest is probably the triumphal arc of Santa Maria Maggiore, which is decorated with mosaics that portray narrative scenes from the life of Christ. Another common structure is the communion rail or altar rail, usually made of carved wood, stone, wrought iron, stained glass steel, or other precious metals. It not only serves to define the sanctuary, it is functional as well. Here our pilgrim approaching the altar receives, kneels to receive the Holy Eucharist in adoration humility. At times outside the Mass, the pilgrim can give thanksgiving here, praying before the Blessed Sacrament in the tabernacle or exposed on the altar. 
the altar rail has been understood as an extension of the altar where the holy sacrifice of the mass takes place. Just as the reserved blessed sacrament is the extension of the mass, for this reason the design of the railing reflects the design and construction of the altar. So there was a, a lot of places you'll see uh, the altar cloth for the altar rail. And you'll see the altar boys come over and bring, drape it over. And you would put your hands underneath that and maybe hold on to the post or something like that and just kneel. So nowadays you don't see that quite often. I've seen it at quite a few, I've seen it at quite a few parishes. We don't see that often anymore. It would be great to get that back because it will get away from people resting their elbows on top of the rail or pushing off it. When you got your hands underneath it and you have that idea of altar, that's the people's altar in a sense. You got the altar up top of the altar sacrifice and that's the extension. So that becomes the people's altar down there. Then you're not turning it into a basically like a, a how would you say like a handicap rail or something just to push off or something to get down and up. I mean, I got two bad knees. I I try my best not to do it. I'm usually holding the kit, so sometimes you might see me grimacing when I'm kneeling down to the rail. Uh, thankfully, they got a little pillow down there, so sometimes I'll just let gravity take over and I'll just drop. But I'll try everything I can not to touch the rail uh, at all costs. St. Charles Borromeo, who called the sanctuary the, quote, chapel of the high altar, recommended that the ceiling of the sanctuary be vaulted, or at least be built of a rare and richer form and material than that of the nave. Michael's next section is the traditional church's altar is the focal point of unity, reverence, prayer, and worship. Obviously, you see the altars of the past, and they're just gigantic beautiful things. I remember the first time serving Mass in Denver with uh, so his Father Jackson. And uh, he asked me afterwards, were you nervous? Because I messed up a few times and uh, yeah, I was just nervous because <laughs> I told him, hey Father, that was the first time I was at, I served Mass at an altar like that. Or at an altar that was not just a table. That was an altar. I was looking up the whole time and just in as awe-inspiring as you could think of. It was, it blew my mind being there. Was, man, I wish I, could, I was thinking, man, I hope I have this feeling every time I do that. Because, yeah, was, there's a difference between being at a little table and then having this gigantic mass of marble in front of you with these beautiful statues. And uh, it was just, yeah. And then here, obviously, you can hear Father, you know, whisper the words of consecration. It just... It, it was awesome in the true sense of the word. So Michael brings up uh, Baltikinos, uh, paintings, kind of like the Adoration of the Lamb, uh, the Gant altarpiece, uh, things like that that just help for the majesty of the altar. And then his next section of the crucifix tells us the God's redemptive suffering. So just you know, beautiful crucifixes that are on the altar. Huge, massive once. Uh, the next section is Tabernacle reminds us that Christ is truly present here. And I remember uh, as Dr. Marshall was talking about that is one of his kids asked him, will I die if I touch the tabernacle? Because the priests were giving it so much reverence, which they should, that the kids were picking up on that. I've, nowadays, I mean, I've, it, talk about cringe when I see some layman, especially a female, going into the tabernacle like it's uh going through the uh, locker so that's the first part of the book i mean he goes through just beauty and those beautiful photos that go with it it's all black and white though but you get the idea again i'll hopefully i have this done in my style with photos so chapter three is our pilgrim is entitled all pilgrim goes into the worship space of the people in parentheses or why you find it so hard to pray in that modern church so you remember I brought up, we, he brings up about it, you being able to see it from miles down the road or a mile down the road. You, know, what, you can see it from distance away. He starts off this chapter, as our, as our pilgrim makes his way to the modern church, he must carry a detailed roadmap with him. He can't locate the modern church by means of a steeple or by following the sounds of pealing bells. Accordingly, he neither sees an inviting spire nor here is a welcoming pill. Instead, he, he keeps alert for road signs 
to direct him to the modern church, which is inconspicuous like a lamp hidden under a bushel. The modern parish itself cannot be seen from the boulevard, but a small sign from the road informs our pilgrim that the Catholic Church lies beyond, off a wooded side street, but only after he has driven well past the drive. A break in the boulevard half a mile ahead allows the pilgrim to make a U-turn, and he drives back towards the church and beyond it to the next break in the boulevard. Well, he makes another U-turn and heads back towards the church praying that he'll see the driveway entrance this time before he passes it again. Our pilgrim turns off the main boulevard into the wooded side street that could be mistaken for a private driveway. Once past the parking lot of nearby shopping plaza, he beholds in the distance among the pines a building resembling a conference center or maybe at school. It's hard to tell, but the address of the building nearby indicates that the modern church must be near. Soon a sign reading, church parking, instructs the pilgrim that this structure, built obviously in the 1970s, probably 1978 when the origami-style church was in fashion, is some kind of house of worship. And the roadmap confirms that this is the local modern Catholic church. Our pilgrim notices that the modern church is rare, rarely conspicuous, not by its form, there are no spires, domes, cross-tip bell towers, not by its location, and not by its beauty. Some, however, are conspicuous by virtue by the sheer ugliness or strangeness. In Oakland, for instance, the new cathedral is conspicuous in as, in as much as it's the only building within miles to resemble a giant clamshell. The cathedral in Rio de Janeiro, a hulking concrete mass uniquely resembling a Mayan ziggurat or Death Star spacecraft right off the set of Star Wars, does little to remind our pilgrim of the house of God or gate of heaven but he can't help but miss the most outrageous form rising from the flat landscape. Nor can he miss the huge teepee-like structure that is Brazil's Marinj Cathedral, or the water-cooling tower that is Brasilia's cathedral. This is next. This is next. Can, you, can, you picture, can you picture some of the churches that he's describing? Uh, the, uh, was it the Taj Mahoney, for example? The modern church facade doesn't evangelize, teach, or catechize. Our pilgrim circles the parking lot, looking for an empty spot to park his car. Because he arrived late and the mass began 10 minutes ago, he has some difficulty finding a spot. He walks quickly to the nearest entrance, up the zigzagging handicapped access ramp that leads to the rear door nearest his car. The parking lot and the entrance is no different from the outside world. Our pilgrim, instead of being disposed by the architecture to prepare him for entrance into the house of God, remains distracted by the frustration of finding the modern church. Let us, however, assume that our pilgrim goes to the main entrance of the modern church. Doing so, the building recedes into the background of the landscape. There is nothing memorable here, nothing inspiring, nothing particularly inviting. There's maybe one unidentifiable statue, such as a short-haired Virgin Mary of the Los Angeles Cathedral, if there's any icons at all. The landscaping, if done well with beautiful indigenous flowers, is probably the most memorable feature. Our pilgrim finds that the facade, the face of this church, presets to the world is quote-unquote faceless. It doesn't evangelize, teach, or catechize. It simply fits in more or less with the other buildings on that street. No passerby would be curious enough to go out of their way to explore this edifice. Neither skeptic nor pious pilgrim will be drawn towards portals, attracted to or even intrigued by any inherent meaning. The faceless facade of the modern church fails to communicate meaning to anyone because the exterior of the building is conceived of merely as a, quote, skin for a liturgical action. Its agnostic aesthetics embraces no particular doctrine, and its form is reflected neither of Catholic tradition nor architectural history. Designers and architects of the modern church are careful not to offend anyone in the community by using particularly Catholic symbols such as a crucifix or even a Latin cross. Following the modern church fashion of the 1990s, a circular window, barely reminiscent of a Romanesque oculus or a Gothic rose window, is divided into four panes to form a Greek cross. To everyone besides the liturgists, the round window is nothing more than a round window with four panes of equal size. 
An important element of the modern facade is the door, or doors, to the modern church. Concurrent with near, nearly all modern church design fashions is the concept of, quote, welcoming doors. These take form of transparent glass doors that resemble those you'd find at other public buildings and in cheap restaurants. Sister Sandra Schweitzer, Schweitzer who served as, as design consultant for architect Edward Sovic on the renovation of Saints Peter and Paul Cathedral in Indianapolis, 1983-1986, explained, quote, With that project, we replaced the heavy, thick metal doors with interior glass doors that say, quote, you're always welcomed here, unquote. Accordingly, most renovated churches lost their often ornate, if heavy, doors because church renovators deemed them unwelcoming. How glass doors are more welcoming than opaque doors has never really been explained, but the use of these transparent portals conveys a sense of ordinary and cheapness. It contributes to the feel that the building is not ecclesiastical but secular. It fails to convey a sense of permanence or durability. Any of those photos of church, you know, the windows, the doors, you know, it looks like going through a shopping mall type deal. Uh, his next section is, the modern church gathering space doesn't draw us towards the sanctuary. It, you can kind of tell, when I was reading this, I had, a, I was just laughing hysterically through this. I mean, it's, it's a big chapter. Uh, the first one was better, it was bigger, but this, it, it was just fun to read for me. As terrible as it is, it was just a fun read. The modern church gathering space doesn't draw us towards the sanctuary. The modern church is unwilling to entertain the dark festivals of older churches. It does provide a kind of secularized atrium, a transitional room between the parking lot and the worship space. As our pilgrim enters through the welcoming doors, he finds himself in the vast empty space, except for the jacuzzi-style baptismal font that may be the focal point of the room, depending on the fashion era of the church. <laughs> I, I'll just picture what I saw a couple months ago. <laughs> this area, he quickly discovers, is a place for worshipers to gather before and after Mass. It's brightly lit and often barren. People are considered the furnishings here. Effectively, the gathering space is a lobby. If devotional items are to be found here, they're inconspicuous, perhaps tucked away around the corner in the hallway that leads to the drinking fountain, the bathrooms, or the payphone. You tell you wrote this in you know time payphones were still maybe there, but I mean there was payphones in the seventies and eighties and nineties. Sometimes I remember one. <laughs> we we had a gym church and sometimes the phone would ring. <laughs> it was in the hallway. Uh, sometimes our pilgrim finds there is there are as many hallways and closed doors that lead. He knows not where. Sometimes offices are connected to the gathering space. Jesus, our risen Savior, appears. It comes to mind. The Blessed Sacrament Chapel, the Reconciliation Chapel, the Day Chapel, the Marriage Chapel, the Funeral Chapel, and so forth. Instead of bearing, instead of bearing some significant relationship to the altar of the worship service, or of the worship space, these chapels are disconnected from the altar. If he arrives for a daily mass. Our pilgrim may enter the main worship space with its barren wood altar, only to discover he's in the wrong room of this sprawling complex. He's assured, however, by literature available just inside the glass doors that the layout of this modern church is welcoming and fulfills the mandate for hospitality. In some renovated churches, our pilgrim finds that the former baptistry has been converted into a devotional chapel. In this room, he finds a gathering of the statues that once adorned the nave and the sanctuary of the church in its pre-renovation days. In St. Lawrence Church in Cincinnati, for instance, the saints all gather in the former baptistry as if convening to discuss the reason for their removal from the body of the church. His next section, the modern church's baptismal font suggests hot tub parties, not entrance into the church. Depending on the year in which the modern church was designed or renovated, our pilgrim might find a baptismal font at the entrance of the modern church worship space, either in the center of the gathering space or at the back of the nave. In other words, the placement of the baptistry depends on the liturgical theory of the day. Renovators of the 1990s seem willing to admit, for example, 
that their recommendations in the 1970s to locate the font of the sanctuary next to the altar wasn't the best solution. Liturgical design consultant Christine Reinhardt writes in her educational handout on the baptistry, quote, like many things since Vatican II, the baptistry is still evolving in shape, size, and location. In its evolution since Vatican II, it's still a quote, the font has been all over the church. Being able to see the font during the baptism was first thought by liturgists to be a critical issue. Now the consensus is forming among liturgists, liturgists that visibility, while important, is a secondary issue. You may have already guessed that the location of choice is becoming the entrance of the worship space. Initially, when fonts were placed at the entrance, they were in the gathering space or narthex. This is true. This has two drawbacks. Was still that lady talking about Christine? The first drawback is it really breaks up the flow of ritual when the entire body must move through doors into another space. Kind of worry about the flow. Second, that was me. Second, the gathering space is the place for random gathering, an important social experience. The nave, or main body of the church, is the place for ritual gathering for the sacraments. When the font is placed up front, it says, look, but don't touch. That was from, he, he cites that, Christine Reinhardt, the baptismal font. Hand out to parishioners at St. Francis Xavier Church in Petoskey, Michigan, 1999. He's got a couple photos of a modern church design is, is the, the, the prototype font that accommodates full immersion. It's kind of like a hot top type deal. Uh, <laughs> you just go on. It's, it's hysterical how he puts it. It's, it's, it's sad. If you don't laugh, you cry, right? And that's the fair. Uh, the modern church's worship space doesn't lift the soul to God. Once through the doors leading to the modern church worship space, often called the main worship space, our pilgrim realizes that there are no holy water fonts for him to dip his fingers to bless himself. Fortunately, he recalls a priest in mass in the new modern church once explaining to his congregation that the water of the baptismal pool is to be used as holy water because, quote, because that's what it is. I've actually seen, you've all seen that. In the modern church, he added, quote, everyone must dip into the same vessel as a sign of unity. Our pilgrim returns then to bless himself in the waters of the pool, wondering how the, wondering how the people entering the side doors near the parking lot ever bless themselves with holy water. The so-called main worship space doesn't seem different from the gathering space. The noise of the gathering chatter spills over into the next space. It's no less light in here. His eyes needed not to adjust. As he looks up, however, he's startled to see that he's nearly face-to-face -face with the altar. The priest is sitting in his presider's chair with his back to our pilgrim, surely not welcoming to it at the least. Because our pilgrim is a few minutes late, the congregation can't help but be distracted by his entrance and the entrance of other latecomers, somewhat chattier. He quickly moves off to the left, looking for a sign of the Blessed Sacrament so that he can make a proper genuflection as a sign of reverence to the real presence of Jesus. Not finding any sign of the tabernacle, he takes a seat near the back of the circle. Now, funny story, I was in Cincinnati, and, no, it was, it was Hamilton, and uh, this one priest was doing, I think it was Sacred Heart Parish in St. Anne's Parish. St. Anne's looked like a real church. Sacred Heart was one of these style. And they told me when I walked in, now he goes, Steve, now uh, the tabernacle's in the back of the church. I'm going, back of the church? Uh, what would you do? And I was kind of like trying to figure out what do, we, what do you do in this situation? So I get to the pew, and I saw people just bowing towards the uh, the altar, the table up front. It just, you know, two steps. It had a, had a stained glass <laughs> of the skylight of Cincinnati. Not joking. I'm not making this up. And uh, I uh, I get to the pew and I do an about face, genuflate to the back of the church, and turn around and sit down, going, "This is just weird." <laughs> you put him in the back. Uh, some people up came up to me afterwards and said how great that was. <laughs> I said this was years ago, five six years ago. Uh, see, not finding his back to Michael, not finding a sign of a tabernacle, it takes a seat near the back of the circle. The seating surrounds the altar on three sides. There are no wooden pews, no kneelers, only cushioned seats so that are so comfortable and casual 
that many of the congregation sit with their legs crossed and one arm stretched over the back of the seat next to them. Others have their feet resting on the back of the seats in front of them. Our pilgrim is a bit disconcerted with the casual posture, no doubt the result of casual atmosphere of the modern church. He used, he's used to praying before the Blessed Sacrament on his knees to prepare to celebrate the sacred mysteries, and to be put in the proper frame of mind to place himself in the presence of God. But his surroundings, least of all the chairs, he finds not all to be conducive to prayer reverence. There is nothing to raise his heart, his mind, or his soul to God. I remember back in Cincinnati, I was in the, the gym church, and Father just got done updating us on the scores. <laughs> yes, I said that. He gave us the update on the local football scores that day. And uh, the family in front of me, I'm kneeling. I was on the gym floor, and uh family in front of me, the guy, he wouldn't stop talking. I go, sir, uh, uh, do I need to leave? I'm trying to pray here. Uh, is there a way you can, you know, wait till afterwards? I guess he was following up on the score. I had mentioned something. Hey, if let me know when ESPN starts saying Hail Marys, and then you can maybe you talk more about the, uh, the, the game in front of me. <sighs> Back to Michael. He peers around the bare walls. There's no sacred art, save for some unidentifiable polychrome reliefs, possibly made of pewter, pewter that are too far away from him to make out whether his images are man or beast. There's whispering and quiet chatting among the congregation. Some of the faithful are staring into the eyes of others who look back at them across the church. <laughs> you look back and forth at each other. Our pilgrim finds no natural focal point here. The altar is too low to be visible. It's kind of like a down, downward lie. Uh, the priest sitting down at the level of the congregation is inconspicuous as well. To all but the people sitting and standing in front of in the first few rows. Uh, someone is reading a letter from Paul the Corinthians. Our pilgrim hears the voice from a nearby loudspeaker but can't find a pulpit or Rambo. The eyes of the of those surrounding him, now you got a, the TV camera, as you can see it on screen. The eyes of those surrounding him offer no clue. Some are looking at the organ pipes, some at the choir members and the band who seem most prominent in this arrangement. Others have caught the eyes of relatives and friends. All right, but you get the point. So it gets, because uh, there's no arch windows, no columns, no familiar language elements to make up a church. No, nothing. Casual is dress, demeanor of modern church is striking, surely the result of casualness and informality. Uh, he goes, in, a in, in such a church, how many in the congregation have their minds lifted to the eternal? Probably not many. It's, it's a, it's, <laughs> he goes at the end, this is no sacred space, he concludes. It's a meeting place. Talk about the pilgrim. His next section, chairs promote comfort, not prayer or kneeling, not prayer or adoration. Just throughout the liturgy, there's no kneeling, only sitting and standing. I know back in the gym church, uh, they had to teach people how to kneel again because nobody was kneeling for 20 years. So uh, they, they had those little carpet things underneath the fold-out chairs. And they basically literally had to teach people how to kneel again. Uh, he goes, uh, at Christ the King Church in Las Vegas, the worship space is reconfigured every few months. Sometimes the altar is in the center of the square building. Other times it's against one wall or the other. Sometimes the chairs are arranged in circling the altar. Sometimes they're configured on three sides in a fan shape or on two sides with an antiphonal configuration. When parishioners arrive for Mass there, they don't know what to expect. The sense of permanence that they have long come to expect from a church has been injured. Uh, this next section of the modern church's lectern completes, competes with the altar. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've actually stayed at a Catholic church where the altar, where the amp, the lectern was in front of the altar. It's the St. Matthew's in Charlotte. They moved it now. It's still got a terrible downward lie, but it was a people joke saying that thing was a Baptist church that had an altar that had a Catholic altar in it. Let's see, for our pilgrim visits the older renovated church of the St. Francis Xavier Church in Michigan, he might notice that the elevated pulpit sometimes with iconographic carvings has been removed and replaced by a lectern that the liturgists call an ambo, a terminology used in first millennium churches despite the fact that these modern secular lecterns, many of which look like they belong in a college lector hall or banquet room, bear little resemblance to the ancient stone ambos with steps leading up to both sides to accommodate the priest and his acolytes. 
just as the baptismal font has jumped around the church, so has the lectern or pilgrim finds. The church is designed in the late 60s and 70s. The lectern was placed side by side with the altar. Neither was centered in the sanctuary to manifest the latest liturgical theory that equated in importance and magnitude the liturgy to word and liturgy to Eucharist. He goes on. There's more. I'm trying to find some more funny stuff. The modern church's music ministry competes with Holy Mass. The modern church accommodates a cantor, a choir, and a band in a prominent spot. A pianist, a drummer, a guitarist, a bass player, several woodpipe players, and the choir is situated conspicuously up front facing the congregation. Our pilgrim notices the music ministry more so than he notices the altar or the lectern, both visibly and audibly. They seem to, they seem to him a performance group that doesn't lead the congregation in song as much as it plays tunes for education. The choir loft is a taboo for the modern church. According to the liturgists, Catholics are, quote, so accustomed to choir lofts in the rear of the nave that we fail to reflect on the fact that God could have turned our ears around if we were supposed to hear the music from behind. I know but we were in New Mexico, uh, St. Philip Neri's, you know, beautiful, beautiful choir loft. We actually, They showed us the, uh, the museum, or the church museum. Beautiful, Oregon. I said, when did, when did they take this out? I said, we took it out when we stopped using the, uh, the choir loft and we got the piano up front now. Yeah. The songs that are hammered out by the band and choir, with the exception of On Eagle's Wings, <laughs> are unknown to the pilgrim and apparently judging from their silence to most others seated nearby. <laughs> On Eagle's Wings. Sorry. <laughs> Hopefully no one's singing that right now. Let's see. The modern church's images don't teach the faith or evangelize. I'll skip ahead to it. It says, liturgists say that the modern church, sacred images of any sort can distract the pilgrim from the liturgical actions and that if, they're, if they are permanent fixtures, the worship space might be seen exclusively as a sacred space. Consequently, there are no side aisle shrines, no stained glass windows, no crucifixes to contemplate, no meaningful icons anywhere to lift a man's mind away from the everyday thoughts. So our pilgrim does spot a few hang wall hangings that create a spark of color on the otherwise barren walls. If the subjects are religious in nature, their presentation renders the subjects wholly unrecognizable. Another chapter, or part in this chapter, the modern church has no crucifix to remind us of Christ's redemptive sacrifice. I know this what was it, St. Mary Magdalene's in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. They had the, uh, we called, they called it the resurrection. It was the, I don't know, uh, <laughs> what do I do? crucifix because it was just a cross and our lord at the base of it kind of like in an i don't know what to do uh uh gesture he was like i don't know he was jokingly called the i don't know uh yeah and you see the resurrection cross sometimes uh, he's got a couple of photos that just cringeworthy that you might have seen before you don't see it this often anymore but you know obviously back in you know the 80s definitely 90s uh, the modern church's altar is only one among many focal points of attention. Because yeah, you got it's combating with the the lector and everything. Everything's on the same path. It's nothing. Everything's flat. Uh, again, he has some photos. Trust me, I'm <laughs> trying to try not to make this a five-hour thing, but it's it's still funny. Another section: the tabernacle is absent, as is Christ from the modern church. When the Mass is ended and the crossbearer carries the portable Greek cross out of the worship space, processing with the priest, the assembly flies out of the rows after him, rushing towards the gathering area, chanting, chatting, waving, hugging, and golfing. In a few moments, our pilgrim is left sitting alone in the empty modern church worship space with bulletins left behind on the seats and on the floor. There's a feeling of barrenness and loneliness all around as if he had attended a baseball game and stayed behind in the stadium after the game. After all the players have left the field and after the fans have filed out to the parking lot, a vast emptiness. The worship space seems to our pilgrim a dead space, a place of no place, a result of the billions transgressions, transgressions of the natural laws of church architecture. So he too heads towards the back of the gathering space, determined to find where the blessed, sacra where the blessed sacrament is reserved. Once through the doors, he looks about to see hallways, doors and offices, drinking fountains and phones, walking up to the coffee and donut stand that had been apparently assembled in the gathering space while he was at Mass. 
he first asks a middle-aged man where he can find the tabernacle. The man shrugs, unable to help. He next asks the older woman where, woman where the priest reserves the blessed sacrament. She goes, hmm, that's a good question. I don't know. Thus, the pilgrim embarks himself in search of what the modern church designer calls the Eucharistic Chapel, or Eucharistic Sector. He makes his way through the crowd of people who just a few moments before were in the assembly of the worship space. Now they have become the primary furnishings of the gathering space. Down one of the hallways, he sees a sign on the closed door that reads Reconciliation Chapel, 4 o'clock to 4.30 Saturdays. Curiously, he pushes the door open. A small but brightly lit room is behind. There are a few abstract wall hangings decorating one wall, two seats, and a couch. How many parishioners who attend this modern church or pilgrim runners even know this chapel is here? It's inconspicuous enough makes it a poor sign for a sacrament of penance. If our pilgrim has not seen the sign that read Reconciliation Chapel, he would never guess that was the function for the room. Further down the hallway is a set of locked glass doors. Looking in, the pilgrim sees a small altar table in the middle of a tiny office space. Ten chairs are lined up in one row on either side of the altar. An lectern stands on the other side, on the other end of the office. The sign reads, Day, uh, Day Chapel, Daily Worship, Monday, Friday, 11 a.m. As our pilgrim continues down the hallway, he passes the restrooms and large bulletin board with postings about what's happened in the parishes that month. At the end of the hallway is an open doorway. Here, the center of the small square room, the tabernacle sits on a thin column. Four chairs, one facing each side of the tabernacle, are set up on kneeling cushions placed in front. Although the din from the gathering space reaches the Eucharistic chapel, there's no one here but our pilgrim, who kneels and gives thanks and adoration for a few moments before returning to his car. Set on its column, this tabernacle represents a bird feeder more than anything else. Our pilgrim thinks, but this is always, but this isn't always the case. Some modern church tabernacles aren't set on pillars, but appear as tall, rectangular, cylindrical, or conical structures known as sacrament towers. The tower designed by James Postel at St. Charles Borromeo Church in Kettering, Ohio, is made of glass and wood. It looks like a tall, slender fish tank or aquarium. I've actually seen one of these. With the transparent glazing, the pilgrim there can see hundreds of consecrated hosts pile up inside. So he's going to get two more chapters after that. And it's uh, Why Modern Architects Secularize Our Churches, or Bad Theology Has Done More Damage Than Bad Taste. And chapter five is How We Can Make Our Churches Catholic Again. And for instance, or what the Vatican wants you to do to help restore the faith in our day. So I would say check the book out, get it. Uh, like I said, it's entertaining. I didn't read all of everything in there, but I found it. Well, the first part was quite uh, educational. I didn't never knew about the uh, St. Charles Borromeo idea of uh, the, uh, the the box being built right there and face the penitent facing the tabernacle. I thought it was a great thing. Uh, most uh, churches I go, I've been in have uh, the Eucharist, the uh, recon uh, the uh, sacrament of penance is in a closet or another. Often, like an office room, you don't know where it's at. It doesn't. It's not prominent like Borromeo has. Or, uh, yes, I didn't know about the uh, the lectern. I thought that was cool about never having your back to the tabernacle. That thought that was really. Uh, I always wondered why I was in the middle, kind of in the middle of a third way up, and sideways like that. And that makes total sense. But anyway, yeah, check the book out. Ugliest sin. Uh, again, if you don't laugh, don't you'll cry. Sorry if I laughed too much during it. I was, uh, but. Uh, I, I enjoyed the book. It's uh, I read it read it last year and went wow what where has this been this is this is great so uh, anyway thanks for listening God bless and uh, yeah pray for our churches to come better. <laughs>